Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. The Branch Davidians, The Anthill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussion of domestic abuse, sex, sexual assault, rape, and murder. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. In the early 90s, Daytona Beach, Florida was a wildly popular destination. Everyone from spring breakers to retirees flocked to its bright, sandy beaches for fresh air and sun-fueled fun. Fitting somewhere on the spectrum between those demographics was 59-year-old insurance salesman John Roberts. He wasn't a Daytona native, but he made the city his home. He had had a successful career, a supportive community, and a great view. Through it all, he watched the steady stream of tourists pass by his home, most of them likely envious of his relaxed lifestyle. John wasn't selfish, though. He liked his beach house to be a respite for others and often opened his home to guests. In particular, he was known to host younger men for extended periods of time. He offered his guests somewhere to stay in exchange for home repairs or other housework. Oftentimes, John and these men also had sexual relationships. It seems that John's neighbors knew all about his habit of bringing home men. Whether he tried to be discreet or not, it was hard not to notice the steady stream of new faces coming and going, even among the crowds of tourists. Although there was undoubtedly an element of generosity to John's actions, it was hard not to wonder if one day it might get him into trouble. No one wanted to say it out loud, but what if one of these guys robbed him, or worse? It didn't bear thinking about. At least, not until the day John Roberts was murdered. I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're exploring the life and crimes of Gary Ray Bowles, otherwise known as the I-95 killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we'll learn how Gary's abusive childhood led to his first shocking act of violence when he was just 13. Then, we'll follow as he roams the country looking for a steady life, until a devastating betrayal leaves him hungry for vengeance. 
Next time, we'll follow Gary down the I-95 highway as he targets gay men along the East Coast and follow in investigators' footsteps as they race to catch their killer. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It can be uncomfortable accepting blame for things we do wrong, but most of us are able to swallow our pride eventually. It's not always easy, but we do our best to own up. Ideally, acknowledging them helps us learn from our mistakes. But sometimes people just can't see any faults in themselves. Even when they cause pain or do undeniable damage, they find a way to spin the story and make it look like someone else is to blame for whatever's gone wrong. These are the kinds of people who never learn from their mistakes. That's something we'll see in the story of Gary Ray Bowles. Though other people in positions of power played their roles in shaping his worldview, he failed to recognize when something genuinely was his fault. Instead, we'll see that Gary shifted responsibility to someone else, placing the blame squarely on the shoulders of another, then declaring a need for revenge. Before we get to that pivotal moment in his life, however, it's important to know about the path that led him there, about the experiences that shaped and warped his thinking. Like so many of the stories we cover on this show, our journey starts in the family home. In this case, one of the pivotal events of Gary's life happened before he was even born. See, his father, Frank Bowles, worked as a West Virginia coal miner and died of black lung disease before he got to meet his son. So, when Gary entered the world on January 25, 1962, he was met with hard times. His mother, Frances, had planned to care for her children while her husband worked. But now, the family's foundations were cracked. Frances remarried when Gary was a toddler, but the relationship became abusive and didn't last long. Unfortunately, Frances then met and married another abusive man, a violent alcoholic who we'll call Nick. For whatever reason, this relationship did last, so Gary grew up bearing the brunt of Nick's wrath. Practically, since he learned to walk, Nick regularly beat him and his brother. Nick's violence was said to be so bad that on some occasions, the boys ended up in the hospital, and there was no one to help them. Whenever Frances tried to intervene, Nick would hurt her too. The family was trapped, and the effects reached beyond the physical. Perhaps as a way of coping with the abuse, Gary started drinking alcohol very young. He was just 11 years old when he had his first drink. That was just the start of Gary's substance abuse. Around the same time, he began smoking marijuana and even sniffing glue. He likely engaged in these behaviors as a form of escapism, since he had no real way to defend himself against his stepfather, not while he was so much smaller, at least. Sometime in 1975, when Gary was 13, Nick dragged him outside, possibly for a beating. But as he dug his heels into the dirt, Gary realized something. He wasn't a little kid anymore. Gary wrested himself from Nick's grip and quickly scanned the yard for something he could use to fight back. Spotting a brick, he rushed to pick it up. Then, with all his strength, he struck his stepfather in the head. Bleeding profusely, Nick hit the ground, and Gary paused, thinking about what to do next. Whatever he decided, he knew there was no coming back from this. The only real question was whether to finish the job. 
In his mind, he replayed the countless times Nick had sent him and his brother to the emergency room. Really, it was no decision at all. He narrowed his eyes, hoisted the brick, and hit his stepfather again, and again, and again. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. As a note, Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. It's rare for children to attack their abusive guardians, but it's not unheard of. According to psychological researcher Susan C. Smith, children who injure or even kill their parents are usually acting in genuine self-defense. In short, children who attack their parents often do so as a last resort when they believe no outside help is coming. In Gary's case, with his mother unable to stop the abuse, the teen took it upon himself to solve the problem. He wasn't on his own for long, though. As Gary pummeled Nick into the dirt, Frances heard the commotion and ran outside. She saw the horrific scene and stopped in her tracks. She screamed at Gary and begged him to stop. Gary froze, his arm mid-swing and his anger still boiling. He could hear Nick's ragged breathing and see the fear in his mother's eyes. Suddenly, he didn't know what to do. But he had hit a breaking point, and there was no going back to the way things were. His mother ultimately confirmed what his heart had already told him. She wouldn't leave her husband. To those on the outside, it can be frustrating to witness an abuse victim stand by their abuser. But to the victim themselves, leaving can feel impossible. The National Domestic Violence Hotline provides confidential support for abuse victims. Based on their experience and research, they suggest that a person might not leave because they fear reprisal from their abuser, especially if there's a clearly defined power dynamic. In this case, it seems Francis couldn't break free of Nick's grip. Realizing he was on his own, Gary retreated into the house and emerged moments later with nothing but a garbage bag full of clothes. Then he set out leaving his mother to take care of Nick's injuries. He didn't care what she did after that. He was done. Once his home was out of sight, Gary called a friend who lived across the country in Los Angeles and arranged to stay with them. With his plans set, he started hitchhiking west. When he got close enough, he used the little money he had for a bus ticket and eventually made it all the way to California. Once he arrived in L.A., 13-year-old Gary had to start his life over from scratch, which must have been a daunting prospect, but he at least had some kind of support. The details of Gary's time in California are murky, but we know that his friend's father set him up with a job of some kind instead of sending him to school. However, despite the fact that he had a place to stay and an income, he left almost as soon as he'd arrived. He hitchhiked out of California and became a sort of drifter, Perhaps because he never had a stable home life, Gary felt more comfortable on the open road. At least there, he was finally able to be independent. But the teenager's money ran out pretty quickly. He was in Louisiana when he realized that if he wanted to afford luxuries like food, he'd need more cash. He didn't have to look for long. Gary caught a ride with a man and the two of them got to talking. But Gary's situation was clear. The driver suggested they could help each other out. He offered Gary $20 if he'd let the man perform oral sex on him. 
We can only imagine what went through Gary's mind as he considered the deal. At his age, he likely didn't know much about sex, let alone sex work. But whatever misgivings he might have had, he needed the money, so he agreed. To be clear, the driver's behavior was predatory at best. Gary was no older than 14 at this time, so he couldn't legally consent to what occurred in that car or to any sexual encounter. But although he was being exploited this way, he was desperate for a hot meal. Afterward, they continued driving, and the driver told Gary that men all across the country would pay for this kind of thing. If he looked, he could make money wherever he went. Again, we don't know exactly what Gary was thinking at this time, but it's fair to assume that survival was top of mind. So he took the driver's advice and solicited men during his travels. Over the next few years, Gary made enough money from sex work to get by, but he still couldn't afford a roof over his head. He often relied on the generosity of John's or other strangers to give him a place to sleep. On nights when he couldn't find somewhere to stay, he was on his own. However, Gary's living situation began to improve in 1982, when he arrived in Tampa, Florida. Once there, the 20-year-old took note of the city's lively gay scene. After hitting the bars and drumming up some business, he learned how to market himself. He realized that a clean-cut, charming image made him more appealing to potential clients. Gary started doing so well that he decided to stay in Tampa for a while, learning the ins and outs of the local gay community. As his livelihood improved, his personal life evolved in exciting new ways. At some stage, he began a polyamorous relationship with two women who were also sex workers. The trio lived together, and since they were in charge of their own work schedules, they had no one to answer to. Gary liked that about his new life. It was the first time he had real peace and independence. But he couldn't outrun his demons forever, even if he didn't know they were hot on his heels. According to a 2008 study from the Journal of Public Health, there are three main risk factors for experiencing intimate partner violence as an adult. Being battered during childhood, witnessing marital violence as a child, and having an absent or rejecting father. Gary had experienced all three of these factors, but the second one in particular had a strong impact on him. The article goes on to explain that the most consistent risk factor for perpetrating husband-to-wife violence was having witnessed violence as a child in the family of origin. While Gary wasn't married, living with his two girlfriends was the closest thing he'd ever experienced, and that put the women in a dangerous position. At a certain point, Gary's darker impulses emerged. On June 4, 1982, he and one of his partners, who we'll call Monica, were spending time at home when they started to argue. We don't know what they were arguing about, but things got heated as the two shouted at each other. Finally, Gary snapped. He began beating Monica so violently that her blood splattered across the walls. Then he brutally raped her. The incident ended there, but someone reported the attack to the police, who opened an investigation. When authorities questioned him, Gary tried to downplay the attack as nothing more than a lover's quarrel. He insisted he was innocent and that he'd never hurt a woman. But Monica's injuries suggested otherwise. When the case went to court, the jury didn't buy Gary's story, and he was sentenced to eight years behind bars. Thanks to his dark, impulsive urges, Gary had lost the relative stability of the life he'd built for himself. And as he headed to prison, it was hard to imagine how he could ever redeem himself. Coming up, 
An unexpected betrayal leaves Gary reeling. Listeners, I have a very special announcement. Parcast is releasing its first book on July 12th, and you can help us celebrate. It's called Cults. Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. This book was written for the fans, so to commemorate its launch, Parcast will be throwing some exclusive in-person and online events featuring popular true crime hosts such as Ashley Flowers from Crime Junkie, Christine and M from And That's Why We Drink, and more. Just visit parcast.com slash cults for event dates, locations, and how to sign up. See your favorite true crime authors and podcasters discuss the cults book and have a chance to participate in live Q&As. These events have limited space, so don't miss out. RSVP today. None of this would be possible without your support, so we truly hope you'll join us. Pre-order your copy of Cults and sign up for upcoming events at parcast.com slash cults. Now back to the story. In 1982, 20-year-old Gary Ray Bowles was facing down eight years in prison. It felt like he'd forfeited the best years of his life. However, in an unexpected twist, the convicted rapist served just 18 months behind bars. But he didn't make the best of his second chance once he got out. The rest of the 80s was something of a lost decade for Gary. Court and FBI records indicate that he bounced in and out of Florida's prisons as many as five times. His crimes were mostly motivated by money, ranging from purse snatching to grand theft. When he was released for the last time in 1993, the 31-year-old was ordered to stay within the state and avoid illicit substances. That was fine with Gary. He was just glad to be free again. As he walked through the prison gates, it felt like he had a fresh start ahead, one that came with a roof over his head. A friend had offered to let him crash at their home in Daytona Beach, Florida. Once in Daytona, Gary was able to stay sober for a while, but it was harder for him to adjust to regular life than he'd expected. Mainly, he had trouble maintaining a day job after so many years of sex work and time in prison. So, after a few months, he returned to what he knew. He started frequenting gay bars again, and even though he wasn't supposed to consume alcohol, he drank to fit in. However, Gary kept his drinking in check because he relied on his pristine looks to land clients. That clean-cut image also got the attention of women. In particular, he caught the eye of restaurant worker Mary Long. Mary worked near Gary's home, so they'd seen each other around, and they both liked what they saw. Their attraction was intense, and their relationship progressed quickly. In early 1994, the pair moved into a small apartment together. Gary picked a spot close to the bars where he picked up John's, but it seems that Mary had no idea how he earned a living. Still, even with that sizable deception, it was the most stable romantic relationship of Gary's life. Eventually, Mary became pregnant, much to everyone's delight. Gary in particular was pleased with how things were shaping up. He'd managed to maintain his profession, even as his personal life flourished. That made it all the more shocking when he returned home one day to find that Mary was gone. She'd packed up all her things and disappeared. No warning, no explanation. Gary racked his brain trying to work out why she might have left. The only thing he could think of was that Mary had uncovered his secret, that he let men perform oral sex on him for money. 
Disgusted with the realization of who he really was, she cut off all ties with him. Even if his assumption was true, Gary had no way of knowing whether it was the sex work itself or the fact that he'd kept it a secret that pushed Mary away. He also couldn't understand how she could have found out. Perhaps he decided one of his clients told her. That made it their fault that Mary was gone, not his. Some people find it difficult or even impossible to accept blame for their actions. This is called projection or blame shifting, and it can be used as an abuse tactic. According to Andrea Schneider, a social worker and psychological researcher, this behavior is particularly common among those who display narcissistic tendencies. Though, as far as we know, Gary was never diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. In Gary's case, he didn't shift blame from himself to one specific person. Instead, he turned against the entire gay community. For some reason, despite his new animosity towards gay men, Gary didn't take a step back from them. In fact, he trawled Daytona's gay bars with renewed determination. It was like he felt people owed him their business. All the while, Gary's relationship with drugs and alcohol deteriorated. Between the cost of this and his breakup, he could no longer afford his apartment. That meant he needed somewhere to live. So he reverted to his old ways and looked for men to take him in. One such man was 59-year-old John Roberts, an insurance agent described by one family member as the typical Southern gentleman. Like Gary, John frequented gay bars around the Daytona area, and when the two crossed paths, there was an instant attraction. At least there was on John's part. Most likely, Gary just saw John as a means to an end. After spending some time at the bar chatting and flirting, John proposed an arrangement. He would put a roof over Gary's head and support him financially in exchange for sexual acts. Gary agreed to the deal, and they moved in together almost immediately. The arrangement seemed to start off without a hitch, but according to Gary's account, John wanted more from their relationship than just sex. It seems that within days, he was emotionally invested in Gary, but the 32-year-old was still hung up on Mary, which made John jealous. On March 14th, less than a week after Gary moved in, the pair had an explosive argument about Mary, and John apparently presented an ultimatum. Make up your mind, it's me or her. The argument stopped there, but for the rest of the day, Gary seethed, reliving the day he'd presented his mother with the same choice. He'd walked away at the end of that standoff, but he was older now, more in control, and he'd prove it. Later that night, John was sitting on the couch watching TV, trying to relax after the fight. When Gary came into the room and stood behind the couch, John kept his eyes on the TV, but invited Gary to sit down. He was ready to put aside their differences and be cordial, at least for that night. But Gary's intentions weren't so peaceful. He remained frozen where he stood, but his mind was racing. He stared at the table lamp that stood near the couch. Seeing it, he thought back to the day he beat his stepfather with a brick, and just like then, he made a snap decision. Gary grabbed the lamp, took aim, and swung it into the back of John's head as hard as he could. The force of the blow was so strong that John flew off the couch. His blood splattered onto the coffee table and across the floor. The lamp had cracked his skull, but he was still conscious, like Nick had been all those years ago. Only this time, there was no one there to stop Gary. He moved forward to finish what he started. 
John tried to fight back, but he was no match for the younger man. Driven by rage, Gary punched John repeatedly in the nose and neck. Eventually, John's body went limp, but he clung to consciousness. With what little breath he had, he coughed up blood. Something about that triggered Gary and inspired his next move. He searched for something to stop John's breathing and finally settled on a rag. He shoved it down John's throat, then watched as the older man finally went still. Gary stood and basked in the silence. The sight of John's lifeless body gave him a sense of calm, but he knew he couldn't hang around to enjoy the feeling. He scrambled to gather his belongings and grabbed John's wallet for good measure. Then he left the house, locking the door behind him. Later that night, one of John's neighbors, who we'll call Tyler, noticed that John's blue Saturn was missing from his driveway. Something about that struck Tyler as unusual, and he feared the worst. Anxious about his friend, he tried the front door, but it was locked. So he went around to the back of the house, then smashed a window and climbed through. Once inside, Tyler called John's name. When there was no response, he inched towards the living room. He stopped short when he noticed bloodstains. He followed the pooling blood with his eyes until he saw John's barely recognizable form on the floor. Grief-stricken, he phoned the police. When she arrived on the scene, homicide detective Allison Sylvester recognized the signs of overkill immediately. Not only was the victim badly beaten, but he'd had a rag stuffed down his throat. But that wasn't the only immediate clue at the scene. Because even though John's wallet was missing, nothing else appeared to be. That effectively ruled out robbery as a motive for the murder. Taking everything into account, Detective Sylvester determined that whoever killed John must have known him personally. So she sent officers out to question his other neighbors, who reported that Roberts was known for taking in younger men. According to John's neighbors, these men would stay for days, even weeks at a time. But while this was useful information, Sylvester needed more to go on. And careful examination of the scene gave her exactly what she needed. Officers found a parole notice wedged underneath an upturned table. Along with a list of prior offenses, the document bore a full name, Gary Ray Bowles. Coming up, Gary sets a dark goal for himself in his quest for vengeance. Now back to the story. In mid-March 1994, Florida investigators were on the trail of a killer. They were sure that Gary Ray Bowles had killed 59-year-old John Roberts, but they didn't know where to find him. Detective Allison Sylvester sent her team into action. They tracked John's credit card to an ATM just outside Daytona. The machine had swallowed the card after multiple failed pin attempts. The man captured on security footage using the card matched Gary's mugshot. However, by that stage, their suspect was long gone and on the move. They tracked John's other stolen cards to Nashville, Tennessee, which was almost 700 miles away, but the trail ended there. With no other options, Daytona Beach PD put out an arrest warrant for Gary and an APB on John's stolen car. About 10 days later, they received a tip that Gary had gone to Branson, Missouri to see his mother, Frances. It's unclear why Gary decided to visit his mother after so many years apart, and given that they'd left things on such a bad note, but that didn't matter to the police. 
they showed up at Frances's house with a warrant for her son's arrest. When she answered the door, Frances acted confused and said she had no idea where her son was. But the truth was he'd simply stepped out for a moment. As soon as the police left, she phoned Gary and told him to get out of town. Gary made his way to the bus station with nothing but the clothes on his back. From there, he traveled northeast to Maryland and spent his time on the road mulling over everything that had happened recently. But instead of shame or regret sinking in, Gary thought about how easy it had been to kill John Roberts. Not only that, it had made him feel good. It made him feel like he had power. There's a psychological concept called the locus of control, and it's basically the extent to which people believe they can influence the situations and experiences that affect their lives. In Gary's case, he seemed to feel a high external locus of control, which is to say that he felt like outside forces had more influence over his life. However, when he focused on the moment that allowed him to feel like he could take that power back, Gary was shifting to an internal locus of control, which is when a person takes more responsibility for their actions. Though he still blamed others for the way his life turned out, he was ready to wrest some measure of agency over his fate. As he thought about that, Gary resolved to kill again. He figured it was only a matter of time before police caught up to him. But he wanted to kill as many men as possible before the clock ran out. With that evil plan fixed in his mind, he returned to the road, determined to stay moving. After about a month, he landed in Washington, D.C. D.C.'s DuPont Circle was known for its nightlife, so that's where Gary headed to find a gay bar. In no time, he met 39-year-old David Jarman. The two hit it off and decided to go back to David's apartment. David lived in Montgomery County, Maryland, about 45 minutes outside of D.C. What happened once the pair arrived isn't totally clear, but David didn't show up to work the next morning. Concerned, his co-workers called his apartment building to check on him. A handyman went to David's apartment and knocked, but there was no answer, so he let himself in. He didn't get far before he saw a trail of blood that led to David's savagely beaten body. He promptly called the police. Officers arrived and found no signs of forced entry, but they did notice that David's wallet and car had been stolen. Then, paramedics found that in addition to the severe beating, David's killer had also shoved a sex toy down his throat. After that, authorities traced David's credit card to a motel in Baltimore, about an hour away. Police raced there and found David's car, but nothing else. Of course, Maryland police had no idea about John Roberts' murder in Florida, so they couldn't connect the dots. Meanwhile, Gary was still determined to kill as many men as he could. After he ditched David's car, he hitchhiked and took buses to stay on the move. He wasn't sure exactly where he'd stop, but he knew that every city had a gay scene. That's where he'd hunt. Eventually, he decided to head back down south. Over a couple of weeks, he drifted hundreds of miles down Interstate 95, passing through Virginia and the Carolinas. Finally, in early May, he landed in Savannah, Georgia. Gary beelined to a gay bar called Bases, where he stood out among the regulars. And not just because he was from out of town. People noticed he was jittery in a way that was off-putting. One witness later said, you could tell he was a hustler. He was there to see if he could hustle the older guys. It seemed like everyone at the bar wanted Gary to leave. That might be why the bartender asked him to help out with one of the regulars who needed a ride home. 
At 72, Milton Bradley was a beloved fixture at bases. He was a World War II vet who suffered from an advanced form of spinal meningitis that deteriorated his brain function. He'd also once undergone a lobotomy, which only worsened the damage. Even though social activities were tough for Milton, he loved going out to bars. The Faces crowd and the larger Savannah community loved and took care of him. So, when the bartender noticed that Milton was growing tired and disoriented, he probably figured that arranging him a ride home might be a good way to rid them of their problem customer. Two birds, one stone. He waved Gary over and asked if he could take Milton home. It's fair to assume that Gary was in possession of another stolen car at this point because he agreed. Gary pulled up, ushered Milton in, then pulled onto the I-95. But Milton soon began to have some sort of negative reaction to the situation. It's not clear what triggered him or exactly how he behaved, but it seems like he experienced something akin to a panic attack. Unfortunately, this aggravated Gary. He pulled off the highway onto a narrow road that twisted through a country club golf course. Realizing they were alone and isolated, he pulled the car over by a shed and killed the engine. He got out, eager to find a weapon. When he opened the doors to the shed, he saw it was filled with golf clubs. Excited, Gary grabbed a club, then walked to the passenger side of the car, where Milton sat, terrified. He opened the car door, lifted the club, and brought it down onto Milton. He pummeled his head and face mercilessly, killing him in a matter of moments. Gary dropped the club and scooped up dirt and leaves from the ground. He shoved the detritus down Milton's throat, then dragged his body from the car. After that, he tossed the golf club into the back seat and drove off, leaving yet another victim in his wake. It wouldn't be his last. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back next time with part two of Gary Ray Bowles' story. As he proceeds south down I-95, we'll follow his impulsive killing spree and the nationwide manhunt that finally brings him to justice. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Eric Standke, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Joel Callen, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, and researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Serial Killers stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them, is now available for pre-order at ParCast.com slash cults. 
Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. 